So, if you've been worshiping with us since, I guess, November, uh, you'll remember that through Advent and through Epiphany and through Lent and Easter, we went through Luke's Gospel. Um, And then after that, we started the Acts of the Apostles. But to read Acts well, you have to remember that you're reading a sequel. And if you're reading a sequel, you have to import the context and the assumptions and the approach of the Gospel to make your current reading of Acts worth anything. So in the prologue of his gospel, Luke sets out that his goal is to provide an orderly account of the life and works of Jesus so that the followers can have certainty in the reliability of the Christian story. And Luke's approach is primarily historical because the fundamental assumption behind his work is that Jesus' works are verifiable acts of recorded history. They are publicly witnessed and corroborated and that they meet the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. His is the gospel for the skeptic. But Luke was savvy enough to realize that Christians not only needed an account of Jesus, they needed a blueprint, a precedent for how Easter people, the citizens of the new kingdom, should live in a post-resurrection world. And so Acts begins with this momentous event of the ascension. Jesus looks at his followers and commissions them with a daunting task. Your job is to take over every square inch of this world from its unlawful ruler and bring it back under my authority. Every country, every nation, every ethnic group, every gender, everyone. To make them my disciples by baptizing them and teaching them to observe my way. But before he sends them out, Back to Jerusalem, while they're waiting for the Holy Spirit, he gives them three things. He gives them the hope that he has authority in heaven and earth, and that he's already won. The second thing he gives them is that he gives them his spirit to do the job and do the work in them. And thirdly, he gives them the blueprint for how this is to happen. The gospel is to move out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the world. Follow this yellow brick road, and it will get you there. And so emboldened by this mandate... The disciples testify with one courageous voice that Jesus is the new king of the world, the one to whom all must swear allegiance, to whom all the Old Testament pointed, and that he is the true son of Abraham who will finally restore the shalom of Eden. But as they preach this message, it becomes immediately apparent that the church is vulnerable to dangers. Some of them are internal and some of them are external. Internally, The church is vulnerable to hypocrisy and to distraction. The story of Ananias and Sapphira demonstrates how those who allow their ambition and their greed to cloud their minds will make themselves disingenuous and egotistical, and that would threaten the wholesomeness of the church community. And one chapter later, the church narrowly avoids collapsing from distraction over distributing the food to the widows. Had the apostles displaced their attention from the reading of the word and the prayer, the church would have lost its vision because they would have ceased to sound the kingdom note. But had they ignored the widows, the church would have abdicated its responsibility for the social and the material implications of the gospel. It would have become disembodied and Gnostic. So in addition to those internal threats, there are external threats that we see ever-increasing throughout Acts. The rulers of the day who feel threatened... uh, by their political and economic authority, they lash out in ever-increasing violence at Jesus' followers. First, they warn them, then they beat them, and then finally, as we saw last week, 
It reaches a crescendo with the execution of Stephen as he walks in to the same place that Jesus stood, and he indicts the same rulers and says, you're a bunch of phonies and frauds. You have always killed the prophets. You have always forsaken your identity. So he stands there like Jesus, and then they decide to kill him. And like Jesus, he bears his shame outside the city gates. Like Jesus, he says the same words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Into your hands I commit my spirit, and he dies. But if we back back, just one step back, we can see that Gamaliel, the prophet who was there uh, in the Sanhedrin as he was examining this, he was right. The apostles' message is from God, and they can't do anything about it. They are fighting God, and they're going to lose. Now, there's one other danger uh, that we should see if we'll back up just a, a, a step and consider the whole story of Acts. Jesus commanded that the gospel is to go to the ends of the earth. That's the, that's the thesis statement of Acts. And it hasn't happened yet. Up until now, the gospel has become bottled up in Jerusalem, and it's permeated Jerusalem, but it's stayed there. And so a wise reader asks, when is this going out? It better happen. It better go soon. If you recall, see, see if you think all the way back to Abraham, and you recall that the Abrahamic blessing was that they were to go to the nations, they were to be a light to the nations. If you read the prophets and see that God has always intended for the blessings of the Jews to spill out to the Gentiles, then you recognize that if Christianity stays bottled up in Jerusalem, it will collapse into the ethnocentrism and the nationalism that defined the Jewish community at its worst in the Old Testament. So look with me at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says, And there arose that day great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So our ears should perk up. What? What? Jerusalem? Judea? Samaria? It's happening. It's finally happening. Aslan is on the move. But as the message spreads, there are two complications that anybody who's worked in institutions will understand. As the message spreads, the farther it progresses, the farther it gets away from direct apostolic oversight. The apostles can't directly see what's going on. And additionally, as it spreads, it begins to cross more and more ethnic and religious and cultural boundaries. So how will this gospel translate as it moves out? How will the followers remain coherent and unified to the Christian charter without abandoning it or diluting it? So notice what Philip does in verse 5. By the way, this Philip, and I was confused about this for nearly all of my life until this week. This is not the Apostle Philip. This is the Deacon Philip, probably. Um, That's what the best scholars think. One of the seven people who was appointed alongside Stephen, right? So he had just saw his buddy get stoned to death. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed them to the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was said of Philip when they heard, his, heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many of them who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame or healed. So there was much joy in the city, but there was also a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest and saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip 
and seeing the signs and miracles performed, he was amazed. So it's, it's a little easy uh, to underestimate this passage if you don't understand that after Hellenization, which was the spread of the Greek language and the culture and the, the philosophies of the Greek after Alexander conquered the world, if you don't understand that, you, you can assume that Samaria was pretty religiously homogenous, but it wasn't. Um, after Hellenization, not only did the Greeks spread their culture, but they imported a whole lot from other places. And, they, and so they imported a lot of deities, and they imported a lot of philosophies, and just kind of incorporated them and swallowed them into their polytheistic religions. At the same time, Stoicism, which was the dominant Greek philosophy of the time, was chipping away at the beliefs in these gods. They were pretty skeptical. So these transformations in, in the culture kind of produced a very eclectic evolutions of what people thought religiously. So consequently, even though people who might be publicly allegiant to one particular religious tradition had a tendency to be what we call syncretist. They, they kind of took a little, little bit of this and a little bit of that and whatever worked and just kind of stirred it together in the pot and that was their religion. You know, it's, it's like the kid that goes to the soda fountain and goes, and then it doesn't really work, you know. Um, but I, I say all that to say that the pluralism of that moment isn't so different from the pluralism of our own moment. We live in a culture that's kind of a hodgepodge of religious traditions. But on top of that, syncretism I don't really want to belabor this point that you learn in Sunday schools, but it's you really can't underestimate how bad the Jews hated the Samaritans, right? This, this hatred was a millennia long. It started when the northern ten tribes left Judea, back when uh, David's grandson Rehoboam and the kingdom split. They left. They were immediately conquered by Assyria. And what Assyria did was Assyria, whenever they conquered people, took them out of their land and put them somewhere else and replaced them with other people. Right? So then the Jews, the northern Jews, come back, but they've intermarried so much, and their land is so full of foreigners that they are now ethnically diverse. And so the Jews hated that. They thought that they had, you know, <laughs> weakened. I mean, it, it's not like we invented uh, uh, racism in, the, in, in modern history, right? They hated that. And it only widened because after they came back into the land, then the Jews got exiled, and the Jews came back, uh, but they said, we don't want your help building the temple. So the Samaritan's response to that was, fine, we'll go build our own temple on this other mountain. Remember, this is what the Samaritan woman says to Jesus. We'll build our own temple on Mount Gerizim. That's where we're supposed to worship. And they invent their own Messiah, who they call the Teheb. And he's the one who's supposed to restore all things. And so consequently, by the time you get to Jesus, and he's standing with a Samaritan woman, when she says, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, she means the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So what does Philip do in this volatile setting? (laughs) How does he handle this cocktail of pluralism and heresy and ethnic hatred? He does what Jesus did. He marches to the center of town, and under the power of the Holy Spirit, he heals people and exercises their demons. He preaches that there is one Messiah, one God, and Father over all, to whom all the prophets pointed. And he claims that men and women, Jews and Samaritan, must follow this Messiah. So the entire town finds it so persuasive that they all believe and get baptized. And as amazing as this is, that Philip has gone into a, a place that hates him and preached the word, and they have followed Jesus. You've got to be careful because Luke's doing something here very subtle. He's, he's inviting you to contrast Simon to Philip. Because, because when we read this story about Simon, we find out five things about Simon. He draws crowds. 
He draws them by working magic. The crowds pay attention to him. They're amazed by him, and they call him the great power. Those are the five things. But if you look in verses 6 and 7, those are the exact same things that define Philip's ministry. He draws crowds with signs and wonders. The crowds pay attention to him because of the signs and wonders. They're amazed by him. They call them the great power. And so what is happening here is something pretty special. Christianity has had no qualms over its history, marching right up to an imposter deity and calling its bluff. You're a phony and a fraud. That's what Moses did with, with Pharaoh's magicians, remember? He marched in and started, started doing miracles, and they tried to duplicate him, and then his snakes ate their snakes. Like, it just, just totally just embarrassed them in public. And that happened with, with Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? Come on, you can get the fire. Let's go. No, he can't. And so God burns it up. You know? Christianity's had no problem about that. But what's happening here is that Luke is at pains to say something very specific. Miracles are not magic. Miracles are not magic. He makes this point three more times in Acts. You'll see when we get there in Acts 13, he goes after Elimus, the sorcerer. In Acts 16, he goes after a fortune-telling slave girl. And in Acts 19, he goes after these seven sons of a guy named Sceva who are trying to exercise people and not doing a very good job of it. Miracles are not magic. The reason this is so important to Luke is because if you think back to his prologue, what he said in his prologue is that I'm trying to give an account that will inspire certainty in the reliability of the story. How can you have certainty in the story if you think it's magic, if you think it's a game? On the one hand, Luke cannot deny the supernatural bent of Christianity. (laughs) We believe in a God who created the world out of nothing, who was born of a virgin, who resurrected from the dead. If, If Christianity isn't supernatural, our faith goes away. But if it's just magic, it's just a game. So Luke draws three distinctions between magic and miracles. Distinction number one. Magic exists solely to boost the power and prestige of the magician. Alternatively, miracles do not bolster Philip's power at all, but they exist to bring confidence in the gospel. Simon venerated himself with his magic. Philip and the rest of the apostles insist that they are jars of clay. They are absolutely nothing, and that it is the greatness of the power of the Messiah working within them that does all of these works. Distinction number two, miracles are not for sale. Magic is. In the, in the first century, it was quite common for, for the priesthood and magical powers to be bought and sold. Uh, and so you would, what you would do is you'd buy, buy the priesthood, and then you're in charge of the temple, right? So you can charge people what you want when they have to come and offer. And so the, there was this, all of this corruption and manipulation that happened. So when we come to this story and we go to Simon's town, we ought to ask, if he's the great power who's from God, why is his town such a wreck? Why aren't people already healed? Why are they still all bent out of shape and, and full of demons? There's, there's only two op- options here. Either, either, he's like, either Simon's like the prophets of Baal and he's just doing cool little tricks. He doesn't really have any power. Or he does have power and he's just holding people hostage because they're economically and physically and politically and socially handicapped. Either way, he's a pretty greasy dude. But the third distinction, the third distinction between miracles and magic is that miracles not only heal physical and psychological brokenness, they demolish the social alienation that a person experiences because of that brokenness. Magic leaves people groping and destitute and alone. 
Most of the time in the Old Testament, when we see magic at work, it's pretty malicious. But even if it isn't, it never restores people to being true humans, which is what God intended. And if you read Luke's gospel, when he shows Jesus healing people, you'll see that he shows him not only healing them, but putting them back into a wholesome community. Right? Remember the story of the leper that he heals, and he says, hey, don't go tell anybody, go tell the priest. Why would he do that? Because the priest's job was to say, you're clean, you're back in the community. Remember Zacchaeus, Jesus heals him of his chronic greed, and then what does he do? He goes home and eats with him, community. Um, Luke is the one that tells us the parable of the prodigal son. Luke is the one that tells the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep about reintegration into the community. Salvation is not just something up here. It's for your whole body. And Luke is incredibly interested in showing Jesus' uh, insistence upon that. Magic turns inward in self-interest. Miracles turns outward in sacrifice. Incidentally, this, this, this fact of reintegrating people into community, I think, is probably what's behind the fact that the Holy Spirit wasn't given to the Samaritans until after Peter and John uh, come down to see this. And it's, it's such a strange passage if you, if you think about it. So, some people say that this is the most, most interesting phrase that shows up in the entire New Testament. What is going on? Peter said, if you repent and be baptized, you receive forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. What's going on? Look at verse 14. Now when the apostles heard Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and they laid their hands on him and received the Holy Spirit. Some people try to to point to this and say, see, this proves that salvation happens in two stages. You're baptized and then a few years later you get confirmed. That's what the Catholics do. Uh, some Pentecostals make the same move and, and then they just invert it and say, you're saved, but th- you have to wait until you, you exhibit this gift of the Holy Spirit that's publicly visible before you're a full member of the community. That's the way some people try to deal with it. Some people try to say, no, it's one stage salvation, repentance, baptism, Holy Spirit, but they just really intellectually, the Samaritans just really intellectually assented at the beginning. They didn't really become Christians until Peter and John came. You don't have to do either of those two things. Because that's not the shape of the narrative. That's not what, what Luke says. We are given no reason to doubt the genuineness of the Samaritans' conversion or of the efficacy of their baptism or of the adequacy of Philip's teaching. I mean, you can read it back into the story if you do your systematic theology and then decide what it means before you come to it. But it's not there. So I think what's happening is what John Stott said is what's happening. The reason for the delay in the gift of the Holy Spirit is that the gospel is moving out into new geographic areas with new racial and religious and ethnic and cultural lines. And I think God was so concerned that the message of the cross produces a unified community that he withheld the Holy Spirit until the apostles could come and verify that this was the true teaching so that everyone would understand there is one God, one faith, one baptism, one Father over all. And think of the ramifications that would happen if he didn't withhold the Spirit in this case. What if the church, the Samaritan church, the new church, had not come under the authority of the Jerusalem Christians? Are we we really so naive to think that these millennia of, of tensions between them would have just evaporated and they would have been separate but equal? How, how did that work in our society? It didn't. 
Is it not much more probable that this new church that's barely weeks old would have fractured into two different sects right along their ethnic lines? Is that not what would have happened? That's what would happen in America. It's what has happened in America. With this delay in the the apostolic verification, God assures that his church will be one body. And so I was thinking as I was trying to study for this passage, what on earth does a Samaritan magician and an Ethiopian eunuch have to do with each other? I mean, it's just, it's just really weird. Why does Luke juxtapose these stories? But, but I think if you use the lens of the fact that the gospel reincorporates people into a wholesome Christian community, if you use that lens, it starts to make sense. It's like we don't have any of these paintings up anymore, but, but when Mia's paintings were up, she had a couple of what are called diptychs. I think I said that right. Uh, there, there are two paintings that exist side by side that together tell one story, right? And sometimes it's one painting that just is in two parts. But sometimes it's two separate paintings and you're asked to stand back and go, what is the author saying by putting these two things in conversation? And I think that's what Luke's doing here. So Philip gets whisked away to the desert. We don't know how. It's kind of like Elijah. He just shows up there. He comes to the desert. He sees this guy who's reading from Isaiah 53 and he doesn't get it. This guy's going back to Ethiopia after attempting to worship in Jerusalem. Now, here's what we know about this guy. He was a black, castrated, rich African male. We don't know much about him, but that's what we know. Now, you just have to think like like an Old Testament Jew here. This man would not have been allowed to worship in the temple. He was a foreigner. He was excluded. He was not allowed in. He was a second-class citizen. And even by this point in history, people had already started to map a person's moral value onto the color of their skin. It's not like, not like we invented this. They did that for disabled people as well. You must be morally inferior because you can't walk. You must be morally inferior because you're schizophrenic. That's what, that's what people thought. In addition, if you look all the way back in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, you don't need to go there now, But you'll see that right in the middle of all of the sexual ethic laws that Jesus gives uh, the new Israelites in the uh, second uh, giving of the law, right in the middle of them, there's a prohibition that eunuchs should not go in the temple. (laughs) And it's really weird. And it sounds exclusive to us. Sitting here and we, we look back, man, how discriminatory is that? Here's what the verse says. No one who's been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. I don't, I don't have all the answers to this one. I, I have a suspicion, though. I think probably what's happening is that God was trying to get the creation mandate of be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. He was trying to get that deep down in the Jewish consciousness, in their identity. And he knew that he couldn't do that unless he established certain boundaries that he may not have wanted to be there, but that they wouldn't get the point unless he did. That's what I do with my kid, right? He can open all of the cabinets except the one that has the chemicals in it. But sometimes I say don't open any of the cabinets, not because it's not okay for him to, but because he doesn't know the difference. I think that that might be what's going on here. How will the Jews learn to be God's image bearers and to multiply and extend that image throughout the whole earth unless they have this focus on the creation mandate? So I think that that's why that's there. You can disagree with me. I, I don't know. Unfortunately, the byproduct of that commandment was that them people who cannot or do not have the ability to multiply that image get relegated to second-class citizens, and they bear all of the shame of a culture 
that prizes offspring. I mean, we've, how many stories have we read where people are just destroyed by barrenness, right? Sarah, Rachel, it was all the Old Testament. Sin sees the opportunity afforded by the commandment and put people to death with it. So here's this man riding back to Ethiopia. He's heavy of heart. He's alienated from the covenant people twice, maybe three times. Gets to chapter 53. Remember, there's no chapters or headings back then, which is really important, actually, if you think about it in just a second. No chapters or headings. Philip comes up, hears him reading, says, what, 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 Do you understand what you're reading? How can I, unless somebody explains it to me? Now, not only is the man reading from Isaiah 53, he's reading from a particular section of Isaiah 53. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 32. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. I think the eunuch's fascination with this passage is because he identifies so much with the suffering servant. Because the central theme of that passage in Isaiah is about offspring. And he's a eunuch. I mean, don't you think he resonated with the shorn sheep who is cut off from the land of the living and who has no prospect of descendants? Don't you think he felt that down in his bones? So he asked Philip, who's this about? And I love what Luke does here. Luke writes, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with his scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Yes, the suffering servant did suffer and was cut off from his descendants. Or so his enemies thought. But somehow, in the most mysterious turn imaginable, this suffering servant defeated death, and now he lives to see his offspring. Flip with me, if you don't believe me. Flip with me to to Isaiah 53, verse 10. That's what Isaiah 53 says. Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. And you know that, that Philip didn't stop there because this is what's so important about the passage that Spencer read to us. <laughs> yes, the good news is that the servant suffered and risen. That's the central part. But there's more. It's that you get incorporated into the community. So in Isaiah 56, verse 3, which, again, if you're reading a scroll, think about this. No chapters or heading. How far is Isaiah 56 from 53? Like five inches? He scrolls down (laughs) that far. And reads Isaiah 56, 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm just a dry tree. For the Lord says, they the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give a house and within my walls a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name and they shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, who holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring into my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. So as Philip explains this big story to the man, they pull up beside this little pond somehow in the desert. (laughs) And the guy says, so what prevents me from being baptized? What prevents me from participating in the ritual that defines entrance into the community? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. 
If it's true that Jesus died and resurrected for all the nations, is there any reason I can't participate in this? Absolutely not. So Philip baptizes him. And if you look there in Acts 8, it says immediately after he baptized, the Holy Spirit whisked Philip away. Don't know how. Don't know what happened. But what I do know is that the Ethiopian eunuch exhibits the same characteristic that defines the Christian community in their suffering. Joy. It says he went rejoicing on his way back to Africa. So, so what can we learn from these two tales? I want to suggest two points and then one practical application with the method. Number one, I've said this to death in this sermon, but the question is this. How are we, the Church of the Incarnation, proclaiming the gospel in such a way that it takes the disenfranchised and those without families and it puts them in wholesome Christian community? That is our mission. How are we taking the message of Jesus to the nations in Harrisonburg? How are we standing in the middle of a pluralistic society that is a whole sea of religious traditions and saying there's one Messiah, there's one family, there's one faith, there's one baptism. How are we doing that in Harrisonburg? How are we calling people to a common faith in orthodox, creedal Christianity? Don't misunderstand me. The apostles and Philips never try to create that unity by sacrificing their message. It never changes. And if we do that, we'll just become one, uh, one more Western church on the trash heap of history that has forsaken our Lord. But the opposite evil exists too. And it's really possible for us that if we start ignoring the material and social implications of the gospel to bring people into community, that we'll fall on our face. We'll treat Christianity as some sort of disembodied spiritual act and not realize that God is about saving the whole world. And I don't have all the answers to how we're doing this, but I do have one. One of the greatest realities that our church is called to face and to take care of is right there. It's 200 yards away. It's Lineweaver. And we should thank Dave, Dave and Anita Cooper for, for heading this up for us. But I'm pretty certain that if we start ignoring the people in line Weaver who are disenfranchised and who are alienated by their psychological and physical brokennesses, that God will not look fair, kindly on our church. I'm pretty sure of that. And I think that we also have a community of refugees in our, in our town and that we must insist that the gospel is for all of the nations by our practice as well as our words. Number two. The second implication is this. It's, it's really not stated, but I think that this is also a comparison in, the, in these two stories between two, two baptisms, right? <laughs> Simon got baptized. And we're not given any, any reason to doubt that he was genuine. But the, but the implication is clear. Live into your baptisms. My father used to say to me every time I would leave the house, he said, remember who you belong to, which was his way of saying, don't embarrass me. But it was also his way of saying... You have two fathers, and I'm not the most important one. When pursued with faith and actualized with perseverance, our baptisms are the right by which God, in an act of sheer grace, puts us in the family. And he's a gracious and long-suffering father. But apostasy happens, and we have every reason to believe. Paul makes this quite clear, that those who have been grafted into the new community, if they don't persevere, get grafted right back out. Live into your baptisms. Last point. I want to make one, one brief comment that Philip has not only adopted the message of Jesus, he's adopted the method. 
throughout Jesus' ministry, whenever he meets people, and particularly when he goes and meets Samaritan people, he asks questions. And Philip has learned to do that. What's Philip do? He walks up to the dude and says, do you understand? Not, not a fake question, not some rhetorical, passive-aggressive, gotcha question to try to burn people. A real question. Because questions disarm hostility, and they invite wonder, and they provoke conversation, and they stimulate relationship. So Philip learns from Jesus. I have a friend who says, questions are shaped like fish hooks. And we're the fishers of men. They're the appropriate tackle for us. Let's pray.